and welcome back to the Live Wire Politics Podcast. I am your host, David Stanky, and today we are going to be talking about abortion. But more in particular, we're going to be constructing what I think is a very helpful, a very knowledgeable, and actually a secular pro-life argument. And so what I wanted to do first is kind of set the stage for what I intend to do, and then also what I do not intend to do in this episode. Uh, I actually do not intend to appeal to any religious statements or arguments, and not because an appeal to religion is not a worthy endeavor. Uh, You know, speaking as a Christian myself, I can appeal to the value of God's Word, but for this very important task of trying to make a persuasive argument to sway the hearts and minds. Our discussion today uh, is simply going to be following uh, the embryology science, how we define personhood, and what rights come with such a claim. And I also wanted to say that the pro-life proposition is not void of the humanity and the pain and heartache that those that are involved in making such a difficult decision are part of. And yes, we'll be talking about science and embryology and topics that may seem devoid of the human condition, but Rest assured, we take part in that human condition as well. And if you're listening to this episode now, you might already agree with the pro-life stance. You might be on the fence, curious about what arguments can be made and if they make sense or not. Either way, I'm glad you're here, and hopefully this discussion on this episode is going to be helpful. So one of the arguments that the pro-choice movement has put forth is about bodily autonomy. And the argument goes something like this. It doesn't really matter whether or not a fetus is a human being, because women have bodily autonomy rights, and no human can have non-consensual access to her body. And we consolidate that statement by her body, her choice. That's the popular phrase. So if the fetus is not a human being with his or her own bodily rights, it is true that infringing on a woman's body by placing restrictions on her medical options would be an injustice. However, on the other hand, if the fetus is human, we are talking about two distinct human beings who should be entitled to their own bodily rights. And this is really where the rubber meets the road for most people. So how can we properly respond to the question of whether or not there is only one body or two? I heard Stephanie Gray, who is a very articulate pro-life advocate, give this illustration, and it went something like this. If a woman is taking a pregnancy test and she does not want to be pregnant, and the test comes up negative, would she consider going to an abortion clinic? Well, the answer is no. But let's say it comes up positive. Would she then consider going? Yes. But why? The negative test simply states that it's just her body. But a positive test is an admission that there is a second body involved. Otherwise, a trip to the abortion clinic wouldn't even come to mind. So what about the other body's autonomy? What about the individual's choice and protection? Now, some might say, it's not a person yet. It's a fetus. It's not a member of society. And therefore, it's not protected from involuntary aggression or violence against it. But how do we define what a person is? Often, some people, most on the pro choice side, would say that a person is someone who is, quote, conscious, rational, self-aware, and is not dependent on someone else for survival. And they often conclude on that definition that neither a zygote, an embryo, or a fetus, which are the three main stages of development, would fall under that definition. 
But if we were to apply that same standard to someone who, let's say, is under anesthesia for a surgical procedure, or a newborn baby whose survival is completely dependent on his or her parents, or maybe even a full-fledged adult with advanced stages of Alzheimer's or dementia who's completely dependent on their caretaker. Would we say in these cases that these people involved are disqualified from the human family or somehow they've lost their rights as a human because of these conditions? Well, of course not. We would say that all of these humans possess or have possessed consciousness, rationality, self-awareness, However, at the current moment, maybe they're unable to express those traits or they haven't developed them yet in the case of a newborn baby. But those things change over time. And there are unique characteristics that make humans separate from any other mammal. And by being human, by virtue of having human parents, one is a member of the human family. At the very moment, we can define what it means to be a person. And this transitions into the when does life begin subject, because for most people as well, outside of bodily autonomy, defining life is really the crossroads for when we can make these type of moral arguments. So the best argument that I've actually come across recently was a scientific paper that was conducted by Dr. Maureen Condit. And she actually lays out the case from embryology and in a scientific perspective that life actually begins at the point of conception because, as she notes, when scientists have a group of cells and they want to know if they are the same or different, they look at composition and behavior. That is, what is it made of and what does it do? And we've all taken seventh grade health class. We know that the genetic material in the egg is different from the genetic material in the sperm. And when the egg and the sperm fuse together through fertilization, what is left is different genetically from both the mother and the father. So we are dealing with something that is unique, different, and in just a very short time thereafter, you have a unique biological blueprint for a human being. And it is also very clear that the earliest human embryo is biologically alive because it fits the four criteria needed to establish biological life. That is, metabolism, growth, reaction to stimuli, and reproduction. But at the point of conception, science tells us that we have the components necessary to develop a unique human life. The heartbeat is detected at early as five weeks after fertilization. You see brain waves at six weeks. Fingers and toes start to separate at 11 weeks. Fingernails at 12 weeks. We also start to notice behavioral characteristics as well. We see babies responding to music, developing taste buds. They shiver when a mother takes a glass of cold water. They start to hiccup. They take practice breaths as early as 12 weeks. All of these characteristics tell us that there's a unique human life in the womb, and there's really no other way to state it. And keep in mind that abortion is legal in most states up to 24 weeks. Most of this activity that we just mentioned is really up to 12 and 13 weeks. And there are some states that have no restrictions at all up until birth. Have you heard of the concept of the unborn child? It simply means 
that an unborn child is a child who has yet to be birthed. And nothing other than geographic location and time changes that. And when I was doing some research for this episode, I found that every medical embryology textbook and every established organization acknowledges that the human organism that emerges from fertilization is in fact a member of the human species. And when doctors are studying obstetrics, for example, they are told that they are treating two patients. So if they were to inadvertently cause harm to an unborn baby, they could be liable for medical malpractice. Which begs the question, why is it different if the life of an unborn child is taken prematurely against its will? And to quote Dr. Jerome Leune, who is the French geneticist who uncovered the chromosome abnormality that causes Down syndrome, he said, quote, To accept the fact that after fertilization takes place, a new human has come into being is no longer a matter of taste or opinion. The human nature of the human being from conception is not a metaphysical, i.e. spiritual, contention. It is plain experimental evidence. Okay, so if we've come to the conclusion that the new human zygote, which is, again, right at the point of conception, has a genetic composition that is absolutely unique. That is, it is different from every other human being that has ever existed on planet Earth, including that of its mother, which essentially disproves the claim that what is being involved in abortion is merely a woman in her body, as we've defined now that there are two separate bodies at place, where do we go from here? There are many, actually, that can get to that point and say, I can agree that this is an unborn baby or fetus that is part of the human family in the sense that they are human, but I would still support abortion because of the woman's right to choose what is best for her future. And to that end, we really need to talk about justice, equality, and equal protection under the law. We recognize these fundamental pillars of our society here in America. It's also part of the United Nations Human Life Creed, that these are natural rights, meaning that they are part of being human. We have a right to life, and we have a right to liberty, but how can we protect liberty if we cannot protect life? One person cannot take the life of another unless in a state of self-defense. So do we exclude an entire population of our society from those protections? Since we have come to the conclusion that an unborn baby is in fact part of the human family, should they not be granted the same protections and rights as a baby outside of the womb? And frankly, I think this is kind of the easiest argument to make once we've established personhood, and once we've established that a unique individual human life has been created, I think this argument becomes very natural and logical. But again, even though we've gone through the discovery of embryology and science, we still have to deal as a society with these hard cases of rape, incest, and the health of the mother. These three cases are often the most challenging to broach because I have a feeling if you took a hundred people, even on the pro-life side, 
who faced one of those cases and asked them if they would actually get an abortion, I wonder how many would actually stay true to those convictions. But it's also important to keep context as part of the conversation because those cases are often cited as the reason we need to continue to have abortion on demand. So I pulled this information from both the Guttmacher Institute as well as the CDC, which are the two leading authorities for gathering this information. And while they don't completely align, they're very, very close. So I'm going to take a middle-of-the-road approach with these numbers. So in the case of rape, it is between 0.5% and up to 1% of all abortions that take place in this country. Risk of maternal health to the mother is 0.03% to 0.05%. Risk of health to the fetus, 0.5%. And in the case of incest, it is less than 0.5%. So the Guttmacher Institute says that about 98% of the abortions that take place in the United States are elective, most of which dealing with socioeconomic reasons. The lowest percentage has been around 95%. So you can apply that to the nearly... 800,000 to a million abortions that take place every year, or the 64 million abortions which have taken place since Roe v. Wade. And again, that is not to devoid ourselves of empathy for those hard cases, but does it naturally follow that ending the life of the unborn child is a better solution than adoption? And abortion is never a victimless procedure. There are always two victims involved. And according to the British Journal of Psychiatry, quote, results indicate quite consistently that abortion is associated with moderate to highly increased risks of psychological problems subsequent to the procedure. There is also a civil rights issue at hand when it comes to abortion. I don't know if you're familiar with Margaret Sanger, but she is the founder of Planned Parenthood, who is the nation's largest provider of abortions. And Margaret Sanger advocated quite publicly her support for eugenics and selective breeding. And you might say, well, that was just in the past and the organization has shifted course since then. Well, have they really? A report found that almost 79% of Planned Parenthood's surgical abortion facilities were located within walking distance of either a black or Hispanic neighborhood. And if you look at New York City, as recent as just a few years ago, we find that there are more black babies aborted than there are born. And think about that. There are more babies that are not coming into this world from the black community in New York City than there are being born. The abortion rate for black women is almost five times that for white women. They are disproportionately the leading consumer of abortion services. And black women make up about 14% of the childbearing population, yet they obtain 36% of the reported abortions. And if you go back to 1973 with the passage of Roe v. Wade, you find that the black community offered the least amount of support for abortion and the least amount of support for the Supreme Court's decision. Yet since then, almost 19 million black babies have been aborted in the womb. You know, the modern pro-choice movement has always painted this issue as a pro-woman issue. 
But the sad irony is that 50% of all of those that are aborted are in fact women. And if you look at it from that perspective, it sounds more anti-woman than pro. That is, of course, if we don't consider the life of the unborn as an actual life, in which case I think we've demonstrated it is a life. And so now I wanted to play a clip. It is a few minutes long, and I do want to give a warning. It's pretty graphic, but I think it's really important. If you want to sign off now, I'd understand, but I encourage you to stick around for the next few minutes because this clip, which I will leave in the show notes, made a huge impact about my feelings about this issue. So here is Dr. Anthony Levitino, who is testifying at a House Judiciary Committee hearing about Planned Parenthood's medical procedures. Thank you, Chairman and members of the committee. Um, I only have five minutes, so I'm going to get right to it. Second trimester D&E abortions perform between roughly 14 and 24 weeks of gestation. Your patient today is 17 years old. She's 22 weeks pregnant. Her baby is the length of your hand plus a couple of inches. And she's been feeling her baby kick for the last several weeks. But she's asleep on an operating room table. You walk into that operating room scrubbed and gowned, and after removing laminaria, you introduce a suction catheter into the uterus. This is a 14 French suction catheter. If she were 12 weeks pregnant or less, basically the width of your hand is smaller, you could basically do the entire procedure with this. But babies this big don't fit through catheters this size. After suctioning the amniotic fluid out from around the baby, you introduce an instrument called a sofa clamp. It's about 13 inches long. It's made of stainless steel. The business end of this clamp is about two and a half inches long and a half inch wide. There are rows of sharp teeth. This is a grasping instrument. When it gets a hold of something, it does not let go. A DNA procedure is a blind abortion, so picture yourself introducing this and grabbing anything you can blindly and pull, and I do mean hard, and out pops a leg about that big, which you put down on the table next to you. Reach in again, pull again, pull out an arm about the same length, which you put down on the table next to you, and use this instrument again and again to tear out the spine, the intestines, the heart and lungs. Head in the baby that size is about the size of a large plum, can't see it, but you pretty good idea you've got it if you've got your instrument around something and your fingers are spread about as far as they go. You know you did it right if you crush down on the instrument and white material runs out of the cervix. That was the baby's brains. And you could pull out skull pieces. And you have a day like I had a lot of times. Sometimes a little face comes back and stares back at you. Congratulations. You just successfully performed a second trimester Dini abortion. You just affirmed her right to choose. One more question, Dr. Levitino. Why did you end your practice of doing abortions? I did over 1,200 abortions over a four-year period in private practice, not counting the ones that I did during my training. Um, I met my wife at, um, during my first year of training at Albany Medical Center. We got married about a year later and found that we had an infertility problem. After years of failed infertility treatment and several years trying to adopt a child, we were blessed with adopting a a little girl that we named Heather in August of 1978. Um, As sometimes happens in those situations, my wife got pregnant the very next month, and we had two children 10 months apart. Um, Two months short of my daughter Heather's sixth birthday, she was killed in an auto accident and literally died in her arms in the back of an ambulance. Anyone who has children might think they have some idea of what that feels like, but unless you've been through it yourself, you have no idea whatsoever. 
I know people find it hard to believe, but uh, what do you do after disaster? You bury your child and then you go back to your life. And I don't remember exactly how long it was after my daughter died that I showed up at Albany Medical Center OR number nine to perform my first second trimester DNA abortion. I wasn't thinking of it as anything special. This was routine to me. Um, but I reached in, literally pulled out an arm or leg and got sick. You know, earlier on, I described stacking up body parts on the side of the table. It's not to, you know, gross people out, to use a simple term. When you do an, an abortion, you need to keep inventory. You have to make sure you get two arms and two legs and all the pieces. If you don't, your patient's going to come back infected, bleeding, or dead. Um, so I soldiered on and finished that abortion. And I know it sounds, as I said, hard for people to believe, but I'm, I'm telling you straight up my experience. You know, after over 1,200 abortions, first and second trimester up to 24 weeks and all the rest of it, and being very dedicated to it, for the first time in my life, I really looked. I really looked at that pile of body parts on the side of the table. And I didn't see her wonderful right to choose, and I didn't see all the money I just made. All I could see was somebody's son or daughter. And I stopped doing late-term abortions after that, and several months later stopped doing all abortions. So to close... This was my attempt to inject humanity into the abortion conversation, hopefully to provide a, we'll call, helpful argument for the pro-life proposition. And again, none of the arguments I made had to be rooted in a religious belief. Although, you can take this and now add on the religious components or religious underpinnings, and you really have, I think, a comprehensive and strong argument for life. And even if you're on the fence still, we always do a call to action. I would say if you can donate to a nonprofit adoption agency, uh, I think we need more of that. And hopefully we'll see less of the abortion statistics over time. For the Livewire Politics Podcast, my name is David Stanky. We'll see you next time.